Welcome to the U.S. Max Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. Max fellow Tessalia Rizzo discusses clientelism in Mexico in a talk titled "Clients or Citizens: The Bureaucratic Costs of Claim Making in Mexico." I will argue that. Citizens face important bureaucratic transaction costs, and these transaction costs provide a fruitful market for for arbitrage opportunities for intermediaries. Right, these intermediaries then facilitate access to these welfare benefits, usually in, in exchange for political support, but also in exchange for other things. And it's important to note that intermediaries facilitate a benefit. Right, they don't necessarily give information on how to access this benefit. So it's precisely because this interaction is mediated that citizens then forego the opportunity to experience how to navigate bureaucracy. Instead, it makes them dependent on this clientelist network to request benefits in the future. This dependence is both economical but also, to some extent, psychological. And this reinforces low-level existing bureaucratic know-how, which then reinforce or make it harder to actually overcome these high bureaucratic transaction costs. And these feedback effects, I argue, are a key mechanism through which this clientelist equilibrium is sustained. And I call this the clientelist feedback loop. And I talk more about this in the paper that I sent you guys uh, yesterday, something that I did not expect anyone to read, but it was there anyway. So this then begs the question, right? What breaks this equilibrium? And there is a ton of research done on clientelism. Particularly, there's, I, I divide the literature in two big sets of explanation. One of them takes inspiration in modernization theory, arguing that economic development and strengthening of, in, of democratic institutions will decrease or uh, lessen, weaken clientelism. And a related set of explanations focuses much more on the discretion that political elites have in distributing benefits. You can call it corruption or, or something else. And these two things um, are important in sustaining this, this equilibrium, but these are both structural uh, and elite, these structural and elite level explanations actually take a long time to, to change. So I'm going to be focusing instead on a sort of less understood aspect in, that sustains clientelism, which is citizen demand for these services. Therefore, if we hold elite level factors constant, right, things like poverty, things like political discretion, even uh, electoral institutions, we can say that high barriers and costs will actually drive up the demand for clientelist intermediaries. And this is what I'm going to be focusing today. So I'm also interested in how these, these interactions shape politics. And I'm not going to go too much into this because it's going to be part of the, of the dissertation. But I just wanted to illustrate my argument with this, uh, with this example. And it's that when I was doing fieldwork in Mexico, I frequently, whenever I was talking to people about welfare, people frequently uh, said, said something like this to me. A mi vecino le tocó el apoyo, y a mí no me tocó nada. And this is something I think that everybody in, in, this, in this room has heard before, which of course translates something to, I never got the benefit, I didn't get anything. And this sort of expression contrasts to something a little bit more familiar perhaps, of like I requested a benefit to the municipal, municipal office and I didn't get it, right? Or it didn't, it didn't accept the request. And although the benefit in both of these cases is the same, oops, 
they, they, they imply different things. On the one hand, this, the first sort of expression implies that this entitlement is a gift, right? Whereas in the second, uh, we, we, we do understand this, this, the, the benefit much more as a right or an entitlement. And this has consequences in how we understand or how citizens understand the state in the sense that in the first case, citizens can be, can be thought much more of a client of an intermediary, whereas in the second, we might think of them more classically as a citizen of the state. So I'm not going to talk much more about this, but it's part of the broader project. So moving on, before I move to the, to the research design, I want to clarify what I mean by a clientless intermediary. First off, what I understand by clientelism. There's plenty of definitions out there. But how I understand it is, we're following James Scott, an intermediary, clientless intermediary, or rather clientelism, is a social order that is sustained by these instrumental relationships between individuals with unequal status, in which the individual with higher economic status, that is the patron in this case, uses his influence and, or, uh, and resources to provide protection, benefits, or both, to a person of a lower status, in this case being the client. An intermediary would then be the person in between these two parties. In the words of a very famous uh, intermediary in Planefantla called Jorge Palami, which I, you can actually Google and see his interview in Televisa, I bring the party votes so the others can eat. But I don't just buy off voters with cash, right? I help them. And the only price I ask from people is that they vote. Yeah, of course. But uh, second, that when my party needs it, and this is important, right, I call them and they come. This is not unfamiliar to most in this room. And so although Jorge Palami might, might have the best interest of the citizens at heart, and might actually even be like an effective intermediary, bringing stuff. And if you see this video, you will see that, he, that everybody loves him, right? Clientelism can also have, or clientelist mediation, can have very uh, negative long-term effects. In particular, it can socialize the norms of quid pro quo uh, when dealing with government benefits. And this can, can translate into perceiving benefits as gifts that need to be repaid with political loyalty instead of policies that can actually be contested in the public arena. How this looks in the words of, a, of an actual citizen, I'm going to give you an example of Ernestina from Nuevo León, a, a woman that I interviewed in, in Monterrey, who needed a new wheelchair for her son who had a mobility problems. And so in a neighborhood meeting, uh, this was in the, I don't know if you guys remember the election of Pato Zambrano. This was a... <laughs> Anyway, this was a, a big thing in, in Monterrey. She asked him if, if he could get a, a wheelchair for her. And so she said, Pato told me, no, mami, you know, you will have to wait. We don't know if we're going to win. But if we do, and this is in her words, right? But if we do, and he, she said, and then I interrupted him, said, thank you very much, but no thank you. And then three weeks later, someone brings me the chair, and I was very excited. And this is why I supported him. What else do you want? If this guy did give me something, he deserves my vote. This is for the mayoral elections. And then so I asked her, so what, what did you do for the local Congress? Like, he said, like, well, I don't know. But when I voted, I voted for Pato's party. Right? The loyalty is to the party. Maybe someone will say I'm opportunistic, but that's not true. Someone helps me, I have to be thankful. Oh, there she is, sorry. Anyway. Um, and so one of the most important things uh, that is, in, that is uh, resources that are available for intermediaries, as I said before, are subnational social programs. And in Mexico today, that's changing, but today there's about 5,000 social programs that distribute uh, direct social assistance, like you know, wheelchairs, uh, glasses, uh, 
educational subsidies, rural subsidies, and the like. And although they're not like a big chunk of local level budgets, there's so many of them that any given individual might be eligible for up to like 12 or more of these programs. So it's pretty hard to know which ones are, are, are um, available to, to any given individual. And they're also, in principle, easy to apply, or perhaps deceivingly easy to apply. When you only write, in many cases, write a letter such as this, directed to the program director, asking for, for something. Uh, provide a couple of identification documents, and that should be it. However, people don't really do this, right? People usually go through clientelist or uh, highly corrupt structures of distribution. Even so that Lopez Obrador has spoken very openly about the role of intermediaries here. And so, what is the theoretical implication? I'm trying to go faster because I'm taking a long time here. The theoretical implications of reducing these bureaucratic transaction costs are threefold, and these are going to be my three main hypotheses to some extent. Reducing these costs should change claim-making behavior in that it will allow individuals the opportunity to opt out of clientelist uh, avenues. And also, by, by experiencing different ways of engaging with the state, it should also undermine the notion that citizens should feel indebted to political parties for their entitlements. And finally, in the long run, and uh, this is also something that I, I talk more about in my dissertation, it should allow for the continuous accumulation of uh, bureaucratic uh, skills. And this should make people more, more skillful in navigating the bureaucracy. From, a theoretical, from your theoretical implications, why is, it important, why is it important that you can navigate the bureaucracy? Why is it important that people have skills to navigate the bureaucracy? They interact with it all the time. They need to know how it works. And at the same time, um, people need to, to know how to autonomously do it, right? Whenever you want to go, go get your birth certificate, your driver's license, to like, a pump of water, you need to deal with someone from government. So it's like super relevant for anything, basically. You said in your paper oh. that if they do it themselves, they tend to be more successful in getting stuff. Well, I don't think that they get more benefits. The, the question of efficiency, of how effective one avenue is, is actually not something that I, can, that, I, that I can say much about just yet. But I believe that there is an equilibrium in which things get eas more easily transferred up and down through clientless structures. That doesn't mean that the alternative of doing it directly is worthless. No, I thought it was more successful. But okay. I'll, I'll, go, I'll come back to the, to the, to the results, though. Yes, Lynn. Um, I understand this is about changing the behavior of people who are accessing the service, but I also wonder about changing the behavior of the bureaucrats. When you talked about you know, social costs, just from years and years of field work, so many people complaining of racism, of not being taken seriously, of waiting in line, of, you know, so if the, if the bureaucracy holds constant mm -hmm. with you know, beha behavior that discourages access, then I'm not sure how cutting out clientelism will, will work. So I guess that's just a question in the model. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, why, I'm, um, that's why I'm approaching this, this problem through individual level action and not structural level action. So I totally agree, but like, what, what has to, when, when one's asking about what can change, you need to also consider what, what is more likely to change, right? What is more likely to be shifted in this equilibrium? Of course, this is like a behavior that is there and that is persistent, 
<clears throat> across Mexico. How easy is it to change it? So I also did a lot of fieldwork with and a lot of interviews and I have a survey with bureaucrats and I can observe what their incentives are to some extent. But in this particular, in my point here is I'm going to hold all of that stuff constant. Let's pretend it doesn't change because it kind of doesn't. Okay. And let's well, see how. No, it doesn't. No. So anyway. Um, all right. Yes. So at any point in the research you want to talk about political parties and how they no. no. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about it in, I will talk about it in my book, but not right now. Actually, I'm concentrating on mainly non-electoral times because this is the time, I mean, this is most of the time, first of all, and <clears throat> most of this stuff is actually distributed through the government. Of course, the government has political parties. Mm -hmm. And in that, in, that is, a, that is a, a true, a fact. I will approach it, but not as what do parties do during elections. That follows a different logic. And I do talk about it some, but I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. So sort of so to test this hypothesis, my argument, I ran a field experiment in Mexico. I also collected a bunch of other data, just a, a preview of what I collected. So I did exploratory field work both in urban and rural areas in 2014 and 15 to sort of identify what kind of barriers people face, what kind of relationships they, they have with intermediaries. This led me to select my case study, which is Yucatan, and I can talk more about why Yucatan. And in Yucatan, I spent a few months doing semi-structured interviews in a, in a random sample of 10 localidades. Uh, these were two citizens, and about 20 or so to elite-level interviews, to leaders sindicales, to party members, to brokers, etc. I then spent two weeks or so in Tsukaka, which is, uh, which is here, this municipality. It's a very small municipality, sort of trying to interact with, uh, with the local bureaucracy. And then that led me, this whole fieldwork led me to design this field experiment, which I'll explain in a bit, which I piloted in June, and then was implemented from September to December 2016. And I'm still collecting some additional data, even now, sort of to see what the long-term effects are. So for the field experiment, I partnered with a civil society organization called Participando por México, which now has changed its name to Nosotros. The field experiment took place in 150 localidades in Yucatan. Randomly, 75% of them, or 75 of them, went to a treatment condition and 75 to a control condition. These were very small municipalities uh, between 500 and 5,000 inhabitants. And to address a question that Lynn had yesterday in a talk, this whole project was funded by an organization called Porticos that does work in kind of settings by MIT GovLab, which is where, I, where I'm a member, and by my, uh, one of my favorite professors and recently tenured, uh, Danny Hidalgo, also contributed, so full disclosure. So it's important to note that theoretically, I'm looking at like, the, the independent variable is reduced bureaucratic transaction costs, and this is uh, systematized as a treatment as an intervention, as the availability in a localidad of a less costly avenue for making claims on the state. And how I operationalized this concept as recruiting a non-clientelist facilitator in each of these localities. And so these non-clientelist facilitators, they look a bit like this, this is Pedro from, from, the, from the pilot. He gave me permission to put the picture there. These were all members of the community. They were created within the community. There was a specific things that, that needed to, they needed to fulfill that I can talk about more later. They were trained on what the information on the social programs, how to do it, procedural information also on that. But more importantly, they were trained to transmit this know-how to uh, interested individuals. This is important because unlike a, a clientless broker, like I said before, transmitting this information should be different essentially in this. 
the treatment is the non-clientless facilitator. And they were carefully supervised by a, a structure of supervisors that I can also talk about later if you're interested. So the treatment, as I said, was implemented at the village level. And uh, to measure outcomes, I conducted a panel level survey. So there was a baseline survey. There was a random sample of individuals within each of these localities. So about 20 to 50 individuals within each of these 150 localities were sampled, randomly sampled. It was about 3,700 people. Then only in the treated villages, the, 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 the 75 of them, respondents were given a brochure informing people of the facilitator services. Then three months later, I conducted an analysis summary with the same people that were interviewed in the, in the baseline. And I managed to recontact about 73% of all of these people. So I'm gonna be looking at three types of outcomes, I think due to time, maybe just two. Claim-making behavior, attitude towards clientelism, and bureaucratic learning. And with regards to the claim-making behavior, I'm gonna look at the number of claims that people make to the state, welfare claims, the avenues that they use to make these claims, who they seek help for, or who they would, in theory, in the future, seek help for. As to attitude towards clientelism, I'm gonna look at a concept called indebtedness, which I will explain in a few slides. I'll also look at the acquiescence to clientless practices as they are now. And I'm also going to look at political loyalty, which goes a little bit to the question about partisanship. Uh, bureaucratic learning, I look at people's knowledge of basic bureaucratic procedures and also the, their perception, their, their subjective perception of how difficult these requests are. And so moving towards the main findings. So first, before I go to the experimental findings, I'm just going to just jump into them. So we expect, according to what I said, that uh, the number of claims would increase with treatment. And what I find is that when I asked individuals in the endline survey if they had claimed anything during those three months to the state, in the control condition, I find that about 14% of individuals said that they had claimed anything. And maybe this goes to, to your question about whether it's more effective or not. In the treatment condition, I find that about 18% of people said that they had claimed anything during this time. And this means that they have claimed a benefit, not necessarily that they have received it. I can disaggregate this by whether they received it or not, but this is just had made a claim to the, to the government. And this is uh, statistically significant. It also represents, importantly, a 25% change. So it's a pretty big change the treatment had on claim-making behavior. Also interested in how people do these claims, right? What kind of avenues. And so after asking people if they had made a claim or not, I asked them, had they made it through a clientelist broker, and there was a couple of options there, whether they did it through another, through another avenue, who helped them, if they received help at all, which I code as non-clientelist avenues of making claims. And then I also provided other options, like the government provided it, or there's, another, there's a few other options. And so what I'm showing you here is the percentage of respondents that fall into each of these categories by control and treatment condition. And I'm going to ignore the people who did not make any claim because that's just a very big bar. And so what I find is that there's no statistical difference between people who approached the state through clientelist avenues. However, there is a significantly larger percentage of people who used, who opted for a non-clientelist avenue. Similarly, there's no real statistical change in other avenues of participation. And so what I find is not that this reducing these transaction costs is actually decreasing clientelism, but it's actually opening up opportunities for other types of claim making. And so not everybody in the sample, obviously, needed or even wanted to make a claim during this time. And so in that case, I asked individuals if they were to solicit something in the future, how likely they would be to either go directly to the ministry, state ministry, go to the, to the municipality, call via the telephone or via the internet. And finally, how likely they would be, finally, <coughs> how likely they would be to ask a clientelist broker for help. And so people can say very likely, somewhat likely or little likely, whatever, li this is coded as one and not likely at all is called coded as zero. And so what I find is that under treatment, people are significantly more, well, 
this is noisy, but there are there's a pattern of being more likely to use avenues that are non-clientelist to request information. Interestingly, and I think this this is the contrast that, that I'm most interested in, there's absolutely no change in asking a clientelist broker for information. And so the evidence, as I said, is that people are not moving out of clientelist avenues, but rather uh, they appear to be complementing existing avenues. And this is important in and of itself, but I also want to show you that, that I observe important changes in people's beliefs. And this, these, these, these changes relate to the second sort of main theoretical implication. And so the first thing I do is I measure, I created a measure of indebtedness, and this is a question in the survey that reads, imagine a person called Julia, who's a citizen like yourself and lives in a community like your own. The partisan broker, which is a prompt that appeared earlier in the survey, gets Julia on a list for bathroom, like the ones that the government is giving out. This was a very popular pr program at the time. In your opinion, how much obligation should Julia feel to support the partisan broker's political party? And people could answer no obligation at all, a little sum, or a lot, which I quote as one. So feeling any degree of obligation. And just so that, that, you, that you get an idea, about 87% of people in the baseline said that they should feel in some degree of obligation to the political party. And so I'm gonna skip this because of time. And so what I find is that under treatment, there's a significant decrease, this is about a nine percentage point decrease in feeling any degree of obligation to a political party. All right, and this is important. This is a about a thirty percent, a twenty percent change with respect to baseline. So this is a pretty big change in attitudes, right? And this is uh, robust to a number of specifications. However, I code the variable; it, it, it remains. But this is the hardest test in some ways. And so I also provided people with vignettes about sick book buying activities. For instance, a broker exchanging money for votes, a taxis or brokers using taxis to pe take people to the polls. Um, providing a toilet like the one the government's giving or a dispensas in exchange for a vote. And people were asked to rate these, these exchanges as either bad, neither good nor bad, or good. So what I find is that under treatment, people are more likely to evaluate these, the first two that are the, sort of the classic vote buying vignettes uh, more negatively, although this is noisy. But interestingly, the two vignettes that, that incorporate welfare benefits are actually pretty, uh, there's a pretty strong effect, negative effect, which makes sense because this intervention is about welfare benefits, not about vote buying. Finally, I measured changes in stated partisanship. So this measures whether respondents identified with any political party. And as you well know, saying that you belong or you, you support a political party in Mexico is more likely a measure of political loyalty or vote choice, much more than ideology. So if the treatment is indeed impacting beliefs about clientelism, then we should expect the general level of loyalty to decrease because it's no longer needed to signal. And this is indeed what I find. I find that there's about a five percentage point decrease. It's a little noisy, but there's a decrease in this in, in stated partisanship, which is usually thought to be very hard to change. So finally, with regards to bureaucratic learning, these results are a little more, more noisy, but I'm going to show you to you anyways. I ask people to say if it's true or false, several sort of basic bureaucratic procedures. I ask them, does a request need to go through the municipality? This is false. In the case of local programs, you don't need that. I also asked people if to say if only a broker can make a request. This is, of course, also false. And also if they should receive a receipt. This is a apuse. And what I find is that there's actually not much change in knowing or getting these two vignettes right, 
but actually people in the treatment condition do learn that one must receive an acuse when you submit a, a benefit, which is important because this is the proof that the government has actually or uh, accepted the request. I also asked people just generally like how difficult they found writing a request to government. And I'm going to show you here the percentage of respondents that fall into each of these categories under control and under the treatment condition. Control, no, no intermediaries. What I find is a little noisy, but, but again, the black bar being very difficult to less difficult, I find that under treatment, and this is statistically significant if one does this parametrically, but people are shifting from somewhat difficult and very difficult to a little difficult. So they are finding things a little less hard. So I've shown you that reducing these costs to accessing welfare benefits can change behavior. People are making more claims. This is not necessarily claims that are accepted or they have received, they're just making these claims. Citizens are taking up non-clientelist avenues. Although there's no decrease necessarily in these sort of clientelist requests, we do see that they're better equipped to sort of in the future seek out information if they so want it. Also, I find that there's a considerable uh, decrease in the feelings of indebtedness for these entitlements, which, as I said before, is pernicious to democratic citizenship. There's also decreased acquiescence with general clientelist practice, and there is a decrease in stated partisanship. And I also showed that some suggestive evidence that people are actually learning how to do these, and perhaps that should help in the future. And I'm just going to leave out some of the implications that I think are important from this work, which is that vote buying is only a piece of what happens in clientelism. Secondly, intermediaries can be agents of citizens. They are there because of there's a demand from citizens. Also important is that to understand what sustains clientelism, we have to incorporate state structures and the bureaucracy, understand the role that that plays better. And also it's important to sort of underline that we're combating a behavior, a habituation of these practices in society. So that's, a, that's an important implication. And finally, this sort of big discussion that is in policy about programmatic policies versus clientless policies. This work sort of underlines that perhaps it's not as important what is in the policy, but we should also sort of consider how people are accessing these policies to better understand their impact. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the U.S. Mex Today podcast, the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between the U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners who undertake cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmex.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.